Of course it's a fucking grind, and when people lie about that, then they're either people that were just given things or people that don't want to be honest, right? Like, we're talking about creation. We're talking about manifesting something from nothing. We're talking about the purest thing an entrepreneur can do. And in my opinion, we're talking about the hardest thing to do in business. We're talking about a baseball player hitting a round ball with a round bat while it's moving, right? Like the hardest thing to do in sport. This is the hardest thing to do in business. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray Serta, and we're here to learn from entrepreneurs who've been right in the thick of it. Today's episode is one of my favorites in years. I'm talking to Adam Bierman, the founder and former CEO of MedMen, an American cannabis retailer which became a cult phenomenon. It's been described as something that looks and feels like an Apple store, except it sells marijuana products. It's an extraordinary shopping experience. When I arrive in California, it's one of my first stops. So I was pumped when I heard that we were going to sit down with Adam, but what surprised me was the difference between the external perspective I had on the company and what was really going on inside. Frankly, it sounds like a nightmare. Adam is no longer at MedMen, which won a high-profile lawsuit in November 2021 against its former CFO who alleged wrongful termination and other things. Adam is now ready to talk about his experience leading the company from nothing to a multi-billion dollar value only for 95% of that value to get knocked off the top. What's amazing is how honest and reflective he is. He walks us through some of the lessons he learned the hard way so we don't have to. If this is the kind of story you want to learn about, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. For now, let's hear about Adam's first entrepreneurial venture, which involved an unknown music group at the time, called Black Eyed Peas. I started uh, putting on parties. They were like uh, hip hop raves in San Diego when I was in high school. Uh, and I put on maybe three or four of these parties my junior and senior year of high school. The big event was my senior year. I convinced William Morris to uh, sign a contract to bring the Black Eyed Peas down to Oceanside, California, which is a military beach community in, in northern San Diego. I had no money, obviously, but I signed this contract and committed a bunch of things to the Black Eyed Peas who had just kind of made it big. And they came down and I got a roller rink for you know the day or the night to have this party. And we promoted it all over at all the local high schools. And it was a massive success as far as attendance. And it was a massive failure as far as performance. <laughs> business-wise, because everybody snuck in. <laughs> it was my first uh, smash in the face that like, you know, creating something from nothing or manifesting an idea, you know, takes close to perfection if you want to turn it into a viable business. Because we did so much well, but, you know, we allowed people to sneak in. They took advantage. Um, and long story short, we didn't have the money to pay the Black Eyed Peas uh, at the end of the show. Follow up if you ever want to ask uh, what happened with the Black Eyed Peas after their limo driver left them and they had to find their way home to LA. We can, we can follow up on that story. But I think that was, that was the first time I really created, you know, something out of nothing, if you want to talk about entrepreneurship. That's interesting. And um, just a quick one, how did they respond to not getting paid? I go to find out uh, 15 years later that the kid that was my partner on it at the time, another 17-year-old kid, he ended up giving them a ride home back to LA because the limo left because we couldn't pay the limo because we had no money. He ended up driving them back to LA. And I find out 15 years later, he becomes their manager. He helped to build them into one of the biggest pop groups in the world. 
Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Crazy story. Yeah, I guess, you know, one of those like serendipitous moments, right? Not everything is as uh, black and white as it seems. Okay, let's talk about um, the real business that we're here to discuss today, the origins of MedMen. So just give us some context before we um, get into like storytelling and stuff. What is MedMen? Because as I was sharing with you, when I go to LA, MedMen is uh, one of the first places I make sure that I go to. But, you know, for others, they might not have heard of it. So give us some context. What is it? Well, first of all, I'm flattered. And thank you, Dan, for validating, you know, what we dedicated, you know, over a decade of our life, Andrew and myself, what we dedicated over a decade of our lives towards mainstreaming marijuana, destigmatizing marijuana, marijuana use. And, you know, with, with this insane dream that one day someone like Dan would fly all the way across oceans and continents, you know, to arrive at our shore to walk into a MedMen and buy weed. And even more cool to look forward to that experience. So thank you, Dan. Uh, yeah, MedMen is a cannabis retailer in the United States. Andrew Modlet and myself uh, got into the weed business in 2010. MedMen now, I think, is in six states. I haven't been involved in a couple of years. I've taken a couple of years since uh, that decade-long journey kind of came to an end. MedMen was the first of almost everything in mainstream, sustainable, viable, long-term, you know, marijuana industry. So MedMen was the first marijuana unicorn with a billion-dollar valuation. MedMen was the first company of its kind to get public. We convinced a lot of people to allow us to list a federally illegal business at the time and still is. And we did that with the Canadian Securities Exchange up in Canada. And so we got public in a first of its kind transaction. We were the first $2 billion marijuana public company, all the first, first union, first national. For Andrew and myself, the thought always was those were nice, but it was really about creating permanence in the marijuana industry. And we believe that we created permanence or we could create permanence by creating this global brand. If there's a brand that's globally recognized and accepted, then what we're doing is saying what that brand represents or the services or product that brand, you know, provides or sells are also accepted. You know, that is always our effort, whether it's opening, you know, uh, the store on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, across from Bryant Park. For those of you that ever visit Manhattan, you know, there's this big MedMen store right there in Bryant Park. And we opened that store when medical marijuana was legal in New York, not adult use and a very restricted program, right? So, you know, why open a store in New York when you can't really do business yet? It's because we're introducing the world to the future of weed. So that's what we did over a 10 year period. There were a lot of big victories. There were a lot of big defeats. We made a lot of friends. We made a lot of enemies. We learned a ton. I started uh, 2010. I was born in 82. So in 2010, I was 28. Andrew was four years younger. He was 24. We were children. And what a ride, man. What a ride that was. What a ride it's been. What did you originally start off as? How far back are we going? A uh, uh, rambunctious, hustling kid? <laughs> yeah, fair. Okay, so um, I suppose, you know, I've um, I've done my research. I know that you um, sort of had an original iteration of this and pivoted into weed, so to speak, after a chance encounter with a certain old lady making crazy money. So I thought I would sort of bring up that angle just to demonstrate, done my research, uh, you've got many stories. Let me guide you into sharing that one. 
Well, yeah, that that is the universe inviting me into this world and my future, right, of, of legal cannabis. So at the time, Andrew and I were running a business out of, you know, our apartments. And when I say apartments, we weren't doing that well. And I wouldn't call it a business a few thousand dollars a month. But basically, I was out selling people on websites and Andrew would build them. Maybe we'd get to run a builder run and pay-per-click marketing campaign. We were definitely struggling. And I got a call from a woman in Hollywood who said that she ran a medical marijuana dispensary and wanted to meet with me. So I got in a car, you know, put on my suit. I had a briefcase. This was a long time ago for those younger generation people, but a briefcase. Yes, I remember what it looked like. And I showed up and I sat down in this grungy 1,000 square foot, what I would believe had been otherwise, you know, offensively disgusting, you know, place of business. And, you know, this woman starts to explain to me what kind of business she does out of this shithole and that she wants help growing the business. And I am just, my mind is blown. And I finally get my yellow notepad out and I'm writing down these simple numbers. And I say, how many customers a day, how many customers a month? I finally say, you know, what kind of revenue per month are you doing now? And and where do you want to grow it to? And uh, this was in 2009. She tells me she was generating $300,000 a month out of that place. And I stop her in her tracks and I say, no, no, excuse me, not per annum, not per year, per month. And she goes, ah, we did $300,000 last month. (laughs) You know, I'm now getting in the car. I don't even have my own car. I'm driving back to my girlfriend who I can't really properly support in a struggling business that I'm trying to figure out what to do with. And I call my partner, Andrew, this 24-year-old kid, and I say, what is the deal with these green crosses and these pot shops? I had no idea. I've lived in LA for a decade. What is, are they really doing these kind of numbers? You know, and Andrew and classic Andrew style. Yeah, of course they are. I've had a card since I was, I'm like, well, then why don't you say anything, man? What are we doing? You know, we got to explore this. And so, you know, we spent a year exploring it after that encounter. And all that we uh, came away with was nobody had any good answers. And, you know, in that classic entrepreneurship story, we get to a point where it's on us to make a decision, as I like to think about it, if we want to jump off the diving board in the middle of the night and just hope or believe that there's water underneath. And that's what we do. So what did the business actually look like before legalization started sweeping America? Like, Take us back to the early days. Well, in 2010, we opened our first store. The store was called The Treehouse. And just in happenstance, I I, I was able to find a a Navy fighter pilot veteran who owned a small duplex a quarter mile from the apartment we were staying at. And I rode my bicycle down and I met with him. I sat on the floor of the second floor, and that was probably 550 square feet. And I explained to him that what we wanted to do. And I explained to him that I believed that there was nothing wrong with what we were doing. And he leased it to me. And at the time, you know, the landscape in 2010, nobody was going to lease. It was very hard to find a landlord that would lease to you, you know, a space to go sell marijuana out of without a license, as you can imagine. And we successfully did that. I found lawyers in California at the time, they were representing marijuana criminals. And when we had medical marijuana program in California, the first of its kind, 1996 is when the medical marijuana program started here in California. A lot of these lawyers, these criminal lawyers also started doubling as business lawyers, helping, you know, the criminal element kind of either transition or lie about the fact that, you know, they were a criminal element. So either they wanted to stay criminal and they used it as a front 
or they want to transition to something more permanent and they wanted to abide by the medical marijuana program. So we met with a lot of those lawyers, paid them a lot of money, and I'll never forget, and a lot of money is all relative. $3,000 when it's your life savings at that time is a lot of money. And I'll never forget, the man's name was Stuart Richland. I went and met him. He was also in Hollywood, straight out of a movie kind of character. I walk in, there was a plume of smoke in his office. There were pictures of Snoop Dogg and him like hanging from the wall and he's sitting in his big desk and he gives me like a photocopy 50 page book on the medical marijuana program in California. I had to pay cash up front for this meeting. And he said, if you can find a lease, let me know and I'll, I'll file your paperwork. Well, I went out and found the lease. And when I called him and said, you know, I, this guy's renting to me, he said, I, I don't believe you. And I said, no, no, he's renting to me. I need that paperwork now. And he said, all it is is articles of incorporation, which anybody can fill out online. And his quote to me in 2010 was, you're on your own, cowboy. It was almost like, you know, nobody ever pulls it off so I can run this kind of scammy business as this lawyer. And holy shit, somebody found a place to rent and is going to go try to make a run at this. He didn't know what to say. You're on your own, cowboy. So, I mean, that was really the landscape. We opened up in 2010 at the time, at least in the U.S., Weed smokers didn't talk about weed smoking to non-weed smokers, even if they were their friends, right? There was such a line, there was such a stigma around stoners. And as someone who didn't use cannabis at the time, I wasn't on the inside of that. You know, opening that first store, you know, opened that world to us, right? As soon as we opened the store, we started meeting people, building relationships, growers from up north, other people hustling at retail across California. Eventually, we meet people involved on the political side, lobbying to try to create change. But, you know, we had to open that first store for that world to open up. One of the biggest things as an entrepreneur that hit me over the head once we opened that first store and started meeting with the other players in the business, I don't even want to call it an industry at the time, was we recognized the edge that we had. We were punk kids. You know, we didn't know much. Uh, we were inexperienced. You know, I had a 500 credit score and, you know, we opened that treehouse for $13,000, most of which was probably from Andrew because I didn't have any money. But for all of our deficits, we had edge. And so that was something that wasn't lost on us for whatever reason. It was something that we pressed for the next 10 years. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, 
If you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you open up this store that's like, you know, the first of its kind, it's weird, weird to the general consumer, right? Because it just hasn't happened before. Was it like a big aha moment and there were like queues around the block and a massive furor and a cult community that would just come and like drive up sales every single day? Or was it the more normal experience a lot of entrepreneurs face when they launch products, which is like fucking grind? Of course, it's a fucking grind. And when people lie about that, then they're either people that were just given things or people that don't want to be honest, right? Like we're talking about creation. We're talking about manifesting something from nothing. We're talking about the purest thing an entrepreneur can do. And in my opinion, we're talking about the hardest thing to do in business, right? We're talking about a baseball player hitting a round ball with a round bat while it's moving, right? Like the hardest thing to do in sport. This is the hardest thing to do in business. No, I did not roll out of bed, snap my fingers, and there were lines down the street. I think even the story you might be talking about, the first story we ever had like that was in West Hollywood, right? And that's not until the lines on the streets are 2016. I'm telling you a story about 2010, uh, you know, starting in 2009. So from the outside, yes, you know, it may appear that we open, you know, a couple stores that are not really that legal. We end up making a commitment to try to mainstream and legitimize this by way of becoming the industry spokespeople, you know, the people willing to go out there and say, weed is okay, weed's good business and weed has permanence. And then, you know, a couple years later, we raise a bunch of money and open a store with lines down the street. Like that would be cool, but that's not what happened. Shame. But uh, yeah, you're not, so you're not, not the first person that just sort of rolled over in bed, like you say, and just turned up and it was all successful. Okay. So you've opened your store, you've gone through some grind. Like how much money did you raise? Like how easy was it to raise money from people? Cause I guess what I'm trying to get to is like, talk us through like the first two to three years, right? Before MedMen starts like getting on its journey, starts getting some notoriety. Was it easy? Because I guess you're doing something niche and exciting and you, you'll therefore find your type of investor or was it? Again, super grind. Here's where my luck factors in. And we all as entrepreneurs have to acknowledge when luck is playing a part. I look at it like a poker game, you know, the best poker players in the world are not dismissing the fact that, you know, there is variance is what they call it, right? So if we want to be more refined, instead of calling it luck, let's call it variance. But let's acknowledge when the variance plays a part in our hand, Because if you acknowledge that, then you also acknowledge the parts that aren't luck or variance that have to do with you, right? And then you can acknowledge the parts that you could have done better at and you can work towards improving those. So one of the places that I have good fortune here throughout this entire run is my naivete. I believe as entrepreneurs, for so many of us in so many of these situations, the core piece of luck or fortune or even variance in that opportunity is our naivete. We've never been there before. Sometimes it's because nobody in the world has. Those are the coolest spots, right? And we were in that spot at the tip of the sword for a very blip 
you know, moment in history. And, you know, for that, I'll ever forever be grateful. What, you know, as an entrepreneur, what else could you ask for, right, than that? But when you talk about raising money, it could be anything. It could be the naivete of a tech entrepreneur who says, I'm going to change the way that people transport themselves. I don't know what it is. They're naive to all the people that have come before and have figured out why that won't work or have figured out why it has to work another way, right? So for me and investors, when we start raising money, I am so naive that I believe it's possible. In fact, I believe it is guaranteed. What a crazy moron I was, right? But if I wasn't that naive person, we wouldn't have MedMen. And I think there's so many people that tell that same story. So, you know, we start this in 2010 with $13,000. There's no investors. We're breaking the law. There's no money. This is criminal element stuff, right? And we don't want to be gangsters. We're doing this because eventually we believe it can be something way bigger. So we don't raise any money until, you know, we get into maybe 14-ish, I believe, and we raise three and a half million dollars. I get a commitment from a doctor out of Miami, Florida. You want to talk about a movie character. I got an investment from his family office. And because he was investing in a company that was not hiding, it was proud of the fact that it was operating in the plant touching weed business. It made like the front page of Forbes or Fortune that day. You know, it was like multi-billion dollar mergers, this, that, whatever. And then it's like weed company raises $3.5 million. It was, but just think about that. It's like, wait, I don't understand. That's a drug business, right? Like on the streets, they raised money. So we raised three and a half million dollars. But just like Colorado, you know, legalizes weed, some small state, the 33rd most populous state in the country legalizes weed and changes the world. I think us raising that money from that doctor in Florida changes, you know, the world of weed. So we raised three and a half from them. We realize after, you know, a year and a half of that, that they're going to get us because everything's predatory because who's going to give you money? Again, I'm too naive. <laughs> if I had known what I know now, I'd say I never take money from these people. I would never sign those documents. Like, look how they have this set up. But what choice did I have? And I didn't know any better. So a couple years later, we get to a place where we go, this is a bigger opportunity. He can't satisfy it. We raise like 10 or $15 million. We raise that money from a billionaire's kid who moved to LA and wanted to chase the sex appeal, you know, of the future of weed. And, you know, not unsurprisingly, that doesn't turn out swimmingly well in that relationship. Uh, he later goes on television in, in Canada and tries to blast us, but doesn't do a very good job. And we make him a fortune. So he raised, we raised like 10, 15 from him. And then we realized, well, wait a second, we can't keep going to these predatory lenders that just want to take everything from us. We need to do this bigger and better. And that's when we raised the first private equity fund. And you want to talk about some naive stuff, guys, like, wow. You know, I called lawyers and said, this was 2015, I think. Hey, we want to raise a private equity fund. And they said, for what? You know, our lawyers. I said, no, for our business, for weed. And they said, no, but you can't do that. Again, naive, right? You can't do that. Why can't you do that? Well, because we have to put a disclaimer on page one of the fund document that says the investors are investing money in a federally illegal business. And basically, you know, the government can come seize all their property and throw them in jail forever in a worst case scenario. I said, OK, write that down. I said, but Adam, you're going to pay us for this. Yeah, write that down. Oh, by the way, also, I want to take one percent of our AUM and I want to give it to changing laws like I want to donate it to marijuana policy projects so more states can legalize it. 
Wait, Adam, you want to pay your lawyers to draft fund documents to raise a hundred plus million in a private equity fund to invest in a federally illegal business. And then before you even make any money, you want to take 1% of what you have and give it to a marijuana policy project to change the laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write it up. But we did it and we raised like $150 million and everybody read the front page of that and we pulled it off. Right. So then we raised the private equity fund. Then we end up realizing that the public markets at that point in time were our most direct path to accessing growth capital. And then we embark upon the journey to go break down all those barriers to get listed, right? And you know, there's a lot of stories I can say, and there's a lot of stories that I don't even think I can, you know, it's a crazy time, but we, we bust through, we get public, we raise $100 million concurrently with our listing. I go on a worldwide fundraising tour. I end up in London. Um, I had an amazing time in London. That was the last stop on the tour. I think we met with Richard Branson's family office while we were there, and they were like the last investor in, I believe. You know, and then I go, you know, with bought deals and the investment banks once we're public and we raise a couple hundred more. It's crazy, right? But entrepreneurs, I think, can really appreciate this. What is the hardest money we ever raise? Friends and family? Hell yeah, it is. Why is that? Well, because that's life and death, right? And is that ever the biggest number you raise if you're successful? Never, right? And so... I get to go through this experience, which is so rich as an entrepreneur, right? Where my friends and family round, right? I'm essentially asking these individuals to write checks into federally illegal business. Getting that money, that first of its kind money, way harder than raising 150 million from an investment bank in a bot deal, right? And I think entrepreneurs can all attest to that. So we definitely ran the gamut, man. I think we raised close to half a billion dollars. You now have an entire asset class of, you know, publicly traded marijuana companies that absolutely have a permanent future in in, in our world. Talk to me a little bit about, so you mentioned um, your first investment. You talked about, you know, you learned some lessons with the type of money that you were taking and how they were set up and how that was kind of juxtaposed against your business. What does that mean? Like, as in, in what sense? So because he was a doctor, philosophically... (laughs) I don't want to talk shit about doctors. Doctors are great. Um, I'm not <laughs> so, 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 so provide, provide some sure. context so I understand what you're actually what you're actually referring to there. Because I understood all the other bits. For example, took money from a billionaire's son. That didn't work out so well. You end up being a dick. I mean, I don't need to ask anymore, right? Like, no shit. Uh, fair play. You went on like, you know, public journey, private equity. You've got some lessons. Again, no shit. Get it. I'm so curious about this first one. Give us some insight. What does that actually mean? Well, first of all, I want to be honest about the fact that I didn't learn the lesson until after I was out of the circus, right? So it's not until I'm really reflective and being truly introspective and honest, and that's not happening until I'm no longer in the middle of it all, right? I'm gone from MedMen. I'm on my roof doing yoga, and you know, I'm all these kind of lessons are flowing through me, right? So I want to be real about that. I didn't realize at the time, right? But when we took that first money, right, what we were shaking hands and doing We're saying, hey, we're an unproven commodity. We have no track record or experience. We have no revenue or business currently to show you, but we have this amazing idea, right? And we went to him with that. And that's what you normally would do with your friends and family round. I think what happened with us, what I realized later is you also have to look at the business you're in, right? And so the business we were in was so risky for people that had the money to invest that you have to be honest about that and then say, okay, now who's going to be really willing to write this check? And what deal with myself am I really willing to make to take that money? I would have done it all over again. 
I would have taken this journey the exact same way and been okay with it all over again. But I realized looking back, taking that first money the way that we did, it put us on this path to have to continue to replace that money with slightly better bad investor money. If that entrepreneurs, when I say bad investors, not aligned, not saying, hey, if we make it, we make it together. I want to help you. But saying, hey, if we make it, that's cool. And if you can't make it all the way, I'll be right there to to figure out how to take all of the pieces and sell them off for a lot more than I invested anyways, right? And that's who we were always dealing with. Talk to us then about the highs and the lows, puns obviously intended. You've talked to us like a lot about like the value of, um, of the company, of raising money, of building new stores, queues round, round the block, et cetera, et cetera. What about culture? Like, what was it like building culture over this time? Like, how many people were you employing through this journey? Like, talk to us about some of the challenges of like scaling up to get to the point of like your peak, I suppose. Purpose. Let's have a conversation around purpose. Man, I wish I had heard this in 2010 and then I read this every night I went to bed. But that's how experience works, right? When we opened the treehouse in 2010 and I ride my beach cruiser bicycle filled with weed to that store and I fill the shelves and we open it up, there's only one purpose of that store being open so that I can generate enough money to lease a car, to make payments on it, to get a good enough credit score, to rent my own apartment so that me and my girlfriend can live. That's the purpose. Right. And I think we're so clear in those moments, which is why we're almost at our best in those moments. Right. Then we have some success, all relative, right? But we have enough success where that happens within a period of a couple of years. We have the apartment and the credit and, you know, I think I'm living the life. And so now what's the purpose? Well, the purpose always started to make money, right? So the purpose is, all right, can I make more? Can I lease a house? Can I get enough credit to buy a house, right? You're on that personal journey of your own wealth. And that's the purpose to start. But when we talk about, you know, highs and lows and all the rest of it, like there's that original high that we get, especially if you start like me with nothing, right? Where your original entrepreneurial purpose is to create stability for yourself and for your future family. There's the high that you get when you accomplish that. You know, we started this in 2010. It was probably 2013 that I was no longer once in a while running to Commerce Casino to play poker to make payroll on a Friday, right? So, you know, by about 2013, we're in a spot where I've accomplished that. That's a huge high huge high. Back to purpose and and me not being thoughtful about it. I'm just trudging along now until I meet these women called the Canamoms. Canamoms changed my purpose. So I meet them and now I realize, whoa, I'm waking up every day and I'm taking for granted I have my basic needs met. Now my purpose is I really do have to go create a permanent place for marijuana so kids like this have access and moms like this aren't scared of going to jail and we don't have to keep living this fucking lie, right? So now I've got that purpose. I give you that background because now as we fast forward to the public company and you say culture and you say, what did we learn? What I learned was because as a public CEO, the day we listed, I didn't know what my purpose was. I couldn't tell you my primary focus because my purpose was to create great culture at the company. 1,500 employees we had. And I said, you know, in six states or whatever it was, five states at the time, I said, I'm going to go meet with every employee. And I did. I forgot 2017, I think it was, I flew around and I met with every single MedMen employee. I sat there at the stores. I sat in the factories. I put my cell phone number on the whiteboard that I still have today. And I said, call me, let's talk. I want you to know where MedMen came from. I want you to know how we got here so that, you know, you can help us. So that's culture, right? But at the same time, 
all that effort I spent on that, I also was running around trying to meet with analysts, trying to go on television, you know, in the finance show, trying to go to conferences, trying to lay out for the world that gave value to these companies what this looked like, what they should be looking for, and why they should be excited. So now I have two purposes. One purpose is I want the, the people who I believe are almost like we're a big family. I want these 1,500 people to be living their best lives as part of our family. But I also want Cowan and company to go ahead and start working to cover marijuana because they weren't covering marijuana when we started. We had to engage them. We paid them a bunch of money to go analyze New York for us as a way to show them they could generate. Like we had to nurture that. Now Cowan covers the industry, right? But okay, so we're focused on on the street. We're focused on culture. Am I focused on operations? Well, fuck yeah. I mean, we're opening a store a day, right? So I got to be focused on making sure we're doing that. Am I focused on M&A? Well, yeah, we're growing like crazy. So what am I really going to be great at? Nothing. And that's the problem with not understanding, which I didn't, how to check in with yourself through this journey and, and be real with what part of the arc you're on, right? Once we went public, Right. Knowing what I know now, once we went public, I had one fucking job. My job was to be the spokesperson for the company, the spokesperson for the industry, and the person overseeing whatever deals we were trying to make to grow the business prudently. That's it. We should have had an entire army of people dealing with the street that were professionals that have a ton of background on Wall Street and Bay Street and everywhere else. We should have brought in, you know, which we couldn't and I tried, right? We should have brought in operations people from the best supply chain businesses in the world to do that. And I could have done the one thing, right? But when we're caught up in this stuff and, and we start off with 13 grand and now we have something worth $2 billion, right? When, who stops us if we don't stop ourselves? Um, and I certainly didn't know how to stop myself. And so by the time we're public, like, yeah, culture is super important to me. And I've lost control of it because how do I influence culture when I'm off doing this and then I'm, I'm serving myself up as the face, which also means the caricature of the industry, right? How can I go talk culture when these guys have to go online and read about how the founder of the company is all these horrible isms, you know, or ists? Of course, the first face of legal weed was going to be all those ists, right? Like that was, of course, it didn't matter who I was. But now I'm trying to promote culture in my company while they have to watch late night TV of people making fun of me and making things up. What was I doing? So, yeah, I mean, all the lessons and all the reasons why I'm here now reflecting versus still being in that chair, which is all fine. Right. I think this is all how it's supposed to work out. When you were in that moment, so public company, you're saying that the one thing you should have been doing is spokesperson um, stuff. Where were you distracted? What were all of the things that you were doing instead? Everything. I mean, you know, my story is, is just special to me as everybody's story special to them, right? I'm, I'm in a world where that kind of talent's not available to me. I'm trying to recruit this CFO from Microsoft, right? Or whatever, right? But they're not going to come work for a weed company, right? So I'm trying to bring people in so I can do the one thing that I still acknowledge I'm special at in that moment when I'm no longer special at the other things. And, you know, you actually mentioned trying to hire like the right kind of CFO, etc. But you ended up having a falling out with your CFO, right? So what was the story there? Was that just after you went public? I mean, the story there, when I say like inevitability, and I look at the arc, and I try to be honest, that story was a story that I believe was inevitable. He just happened to be the character that played it out, you know, this time around. 
But in this story, there was going to be somebody who was in over their head, as so many of us were at the executive level, who would not only not be accountable or raise their hand and say, I want to stretch and get better, but would dig their head in, point fingers and say, where's my money? I mean, unfortunately, you know, you guys are, are over there, like in the U.S., but in California, right? This is just a place where if you're an employee and you don't want to work anymore, there's nothing stopping you from saying, I deserve money. And so he picked the most opportune time in the middle of a financing after the biggest deal we had ever put together fell apart, in large part to do with the Department of Justice of the United States targeting us and making sure the deal didn't happen. I went in the middle of the night and raised us over $100 million to bridge the gap, patch any kind of wounds that we kind of encountered during that one-year process of trying to integrate with this other company. And the guy just walked out extortion style and said, hey, pay me all this money or I'm not going to sign the disclosures and I'm not coming back. But if it wasn't him, it was somebody else, right? You know, that is so many lessons in that for me, mostly about validation. I think that's something that as entrepreneurs, especially in 2022, especially in a world where everything is so public, I think that's something that as entrepreneurs, we have to, if we want to be healthy, right? And we want to give ourselves the best chance of success. We have to say to ourselves and live up front. We cannot live our lives based on the validation from people who don't know us. Because in this world, especially when we're trying to create things that maybe didn't exist yesterday, it just lends itself to people who don't know us, not only not validating what we're doing, but hating on what we're doing. And so like, if we can acknowledge that and we can figure out how to, I think part of being a great entrepreneur in 2022 versus even 10 years ago is you need to have that component part. You can't ignore it. And is it like, so you talked about, uh, by the way, thank you for that, um, that insight, because um, I love the philosophical view that it isn't actually anything to do with him. It's more an inevitability at a certain stage. You employ enough people, you're going to get some of it wrong. Um, and obviously wrong is also, uh, you know, a matter of opinion. I'm sure they have theirs and you have yours and the truth always lies somewhere in between. But it's an interesting attitude and an interesting reflection point, right? Which is, at some point, it becomes an inevitability. You get big enough and you take on enough uh, competition, someone's going to be there to tear you down anyway. And how you react in those moments is so important. Well, and I think that's back to the arc of your own life timeline as an entrepreneur. And as we talk about those people that we learn from, you know, and for me, again, Kikorian, all the way to Zuckerberg and Jobs and whoever else are the people that you look at. It doesn't matter who they are. You'll be hard pressed to find any of them that weren't in these exact same spots. And it's what part of your life, life arc as an entrepreneur are you on when you face these spots? When you face the spot of an investor who's giving you money, but on some horrible terms. Well, where are you in your life arc, right? If you're me today at 40, you could say no. But if you're me at 28, you better say yes. And I love what you said, Dan, and a hug and a thank you. It's the same thing, you know, with all of this. And I think the more we understand the people we look up to went through the exact same thing, the easier it is for us to proactively understand that. So it's like, I didn't know that Steve Wynn, you know, was doing a song and dance in front of a bunch of Wall Street analysts, pretty much putting the middle finger to the air and saying, I don't care what you think of my new Beau Rivage casino, you know, just weeks or months before you know, his stock crashed and his company was essentially stolen from him. You know, he had to go through that. He had to go through that. Steve Wynn, his name was, the Bellagio was already built. And he had to go through starting from scratch. 
but he didn't really start from scratch because his life arc was such that he was at that next part in his life. You have all that experience. When people say, oh, I'm starting over, now you're not being honest, right? Starting over, what does that mean? You now have this foundational experience to build from. I love that scene in The Social Network for all the entrepreneurs that love that movie like I do, you know, of the boardroom when Zuckerberg's partner walks in, you know, they're all waiting for him and it's like, hey, it's up. Like, I live that scene. I walked into MedMen and they were fucking waiting for me in the boardroom. You know, the lawyers with their laptops at 7.30 in the morning and I'm the unassuming idiot. Right? Oh, hey, nice to be here. What are you guys here to do today? You guys here to give me a high five? No, 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 no. Right? Like, those are all inevitable things that happen. But if and when that ever happens to me when I'm in my 40s or 50s in company two, three, or four, to your point, right? It's how do you deal with it in that moment? And my thing, my challenge to us is if we acknowledge what it is when we live through it earlier in our lives, we better be ready for it and we better deal with it way more effectively as we continue on these arcs as entrepreneurs. On the note of, you know, where you are in the arc and what you learn in your journey, it's such a, it is, it's also just such a fascinating journey because it does have, it's got the hero, it's like a classic Joseph Campbell hero's uh, journey to it. Obviously you experience a lot of highs, but then obviously, you know, you have this big moment where the company's value comes crashing down as well. I've been through something like that in my own company, but we weren't public. So it wasn't public. Do you know what I mean? I felt like, you know, reputationally and pride and hurt. And, you know, my company failed essentially after raising a bunch of money and being the darling and all that stuff. But so I've experienced it and I know the pain and um, shame. I wonder, like, how has that experience been, like on reflection for you to go through something like that? And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about it as someone who's done the research and, and, you know, and is aware of your story. Like, could you continue the story arc then in your own words from reaching your highs, you know, your $2 billion valuation, things all going up? What happens after? Seeds that had been planted almost a decade earlier turn into trees. When you're sitting playing in, in this analogy, when you're sitting playing in the forest and you're running around playing your game in the open field, Right. But the only way you got access to the field was, you know, you knew that seeds were planted all over it, but you knew they were just seeds and you're playing in the field. And now you show up, and you're like, oh, my God, I got nowhere else to run. There's trees everywhere. I know because I'm the one living it. And, you know, because you lived it, Dan, that those seeds are all way in advance of when the world figures it out or when the world sees it or when you are even willing to acknowledge it. The two and a half billion dollar valuation, I planted the seed for that when we took a $10 million investment and became the first, you know, cannabis unicorn in the history of the world, right? And that was in 2017, right? It was that that allowed us to get to that place and almost made it inevitable that we would get there. But it was also the fact that being first in such a hyped market, you know, with so much fervor and excitement and reliance upon continued momentum, uh, regulatory momentum, because we were the first and the tip of the sword, of course, the minute that that shifts, regulatory momentum slows down for a minute. The market seizes up for a minute. We make a mistake or we don't close on a half a billion dollar M&A deal, right? The minute that happens, it completely goes upside down. But it's not that, oh my God, I was on the top of the world. And then the next day I was here going, how do I, how do I deal with the stock being down 40%? It was like, oh, I've been fighting against that for two years. 
there have been spy games and attempts of people to take us out. And, you know, not only the DOJ, but now we have Gotham Green involved, who is the most predatory of all the lenders who literally set a, a, the biggest trap up and I walk right into it. I'm fighting that battle while the world thinks we're on the top of the world. So, you know, how do I deal with the shame? I love that word. Thank you for bringing up that word. We should all use that word more. We all have shame. And as entrepreneurs, we've got to get rid of it. Right. But shame starts from the validation, right, or the reactions or the views of you from third parties. Like we don't really have shame. I don't go to bed at night going, I'm upset. I'm upset if I don't make a decision as an entrepreneur. I'm not upset if the decision is wrong. But if the decision is wrong and it costs investors money, as humans, we then have this shame. But as entrepreneurs, we have to get rid of that. Because as a friend once told me, as entrepreneurs, it is not our jobs to make money for our investors. They made their own money. Their job is to invest that money. Our job is to build the thing that we say we're going to build, right? And to do everybody justice, we want to build it in as healthy as way as possible. But you know, there were days where our stock would be down 30%. And I know that the company was in a 10 times better position than it was a week earlier. The two things weren't correlated. So if they're not correlated in my situation like that, how can I allow that to create shame, which then influences my actions? I have to keep going through my process, which is use imperfect information to make the best decision finished with my intuition as possible. Make that decision and take the action that is connected to that decision as quickly as possible. Because in taking the action, I get to the consequence as quickly as possible. And then through that consequence, I am more informed to go ahead and analyze my next situation, use my intuition, make a decision and take an action. You talk about, um, you know, this moment you sort of fell into a trap um, or like rather, you know, they were setting up a trap and you walked right into it. Is that sort of part of the uh, the journey of where it all comes like crashing down? Is that like, you know, can you color what, what that even means? Um, treat me like I'm five. Yeah, sure. Well, a better way of saying it. <laughs> well, we built something that, is going nowhere. The store down the street on Abikini Boulevard or the store next to LAX or in Manhattan or in Chicago, like those are going nowhere because those are the best locations in the country. But, you know, when you talk about the stock coming crashing down, it's not one event. It's not just Gotham Green convincing me to forego executing on an investment from uh, a Canadian uh, investor group to sign a deal with them for them to invest up to $250 million in a med men. It wasn't just that, but that was a big part of it. It wasn't just the Department of Justice making sure the Pharmacan deal didn't happen after we had spent you know, a year getting ready to integrate. It wasn't just that our CFO was so far over his head that he couldn't even produce a budget for a public company. And when we called him out on it, he walked out in the middle of the day and then he filed a lawsuit making up as much as he could make up, which reputationally just, you know, took a bazooka out to the company and also took a bazooka, took my head off with all those allegations in a world where allegations are all you need. It's all those things. It's not just that I actually figured out the money in December of 2019 just to have the investor die of a stroke and me to find out about it on Christmas Eve Right. It wasn't just that. It wasn't like, oh, my God, predatory investor. I, I got rid of Gotham. I figured it out. I got a guy to come in and put money in and we solved it. Oh, man, guy had a stroke and died. 
tragically. It was all of those things. And all this is happening within six months. And you have the greater pullback of the market. And you have those people that have now, this is where I'm really honest, you have those people that have now walked through the doors we created, the Cura Leafs, the GTIs, the companies that are the biggest market cap companies of this time period, right? The tip of the spear today. You had those people walk through our doors that we knocked down. Knocking those doors down for us put a lot of arrows all over us. And by the time I walk through, we walk through, we're hobbling, right? GTI, Ben Kovler, the Jim Beam family dynasty, right? They know not to walk through that door first. They're too smart, too many generations. They're not naive the way I am. So they wait for this guy to take the arrows down through the door and then they walk right behind it, right? And then you have the masterpiece that was painted by Boris and Kiralif. And they are the ultimate, you know, walking through the door as the next generation, taking all their experience in the public markets, right, and, and, and flourishing. And, you know, you, you play your part while you play your part, and now they'll play their part while they play their part. And then, you know, Altria and AB InBev will play their part, right? So these are the parties that have taken over um, ownership, just to read between the lines and to explain to the audience. Otherwise, they just sort of sound like random names. Okay, last question. What is your favorite lesson that you're taking forward into your life from your journey so far? Life is beautiful and life is easy. Coming from a kid that grew up with next to nothing. Because the beauty of this is experience and its relationships. I started this journey as an entrepreneur thinking life was about making money so that I could have things and things led to security. But in this arc of the journey, I realized that my security is my health. And my security is the ability I still have to go out and interact with people and build relationships and have the experience of doing cool shit. So my biggest lesson is like, whatever it is I'm doing today, like I'm doing it, you know, acknowledging that I'm just so fortunate to be able to do it. And that's independent of money. And I think that freedom as entrepreneurs, if we want to have that freedom and then apply our focus to entrepreneurship or creation or business, that's the freedom that lets people fly. That's when real greatness is, you know, created. That's when things that change, you know, the arc of the world happen, you know, when people are operating from that vantage point. Amazing. Thanks, Adam. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. As much as also like it can be really tough running business, you have got such a privileged position to be able to, if you've got a successful brand that has a platform and you have a voice, I actually find that really empowering so yeah it comes in swings and roundabouts and it, it is crazy how one day you can win a tesco listing in one morning and then you'll have a shit storm with your factory in the afternoon and like you can have like a year and a day if you know what i mean that was pippa murray the founder of the nut butter brand pip and nut i really enjoyed this interview because one i'm nutty about nut butter sorry I had to. And two, I was joined as an interviewer by Rich, the co-founder of Secret Leaders. But Rich was also an early investor in Pip and Nut, having known Pip from university. So we thought he could help me out. 
Find out how Pip has managed to build a love brand that you can see in most supermarkets across the country next week on Secret Leaders. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.